Philippians 2, 1 to 18. Therefore, if you have been, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by being obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky, as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Good morning, everyone. Uh, So we're currently in a sermon series on Paul's letter to the Philippian church. And it's a letter about Jesus, and it's a letter about joy. Paul shows us in this letter in a very, very personal way that life in Jesus Christ produces a supernatural joy. Even in an unlikely place like the church in Philippi, a church in challenging circumstances. And in today's passage, we're going to learn how we can find joy in something that the ancient Romans and Greeks absolutely hated, but is central to the Christian faith, and that is humility. The ancient Romans and Greeks view humility with contempt, because humility to them implied lowliness, weakness, lack of freedom, and being subjugated to a master. They absolutely hated that. In Roman and Greek culture, humility was shameful. So much so that the Greeks didn't even have a word for humility. They couldn't even describe it or define it. But for Jesus Christ and his followers, true greatness and true nobility consists in humble service to others. And so it really was that the word for humility was coined by the church when the Christian church was birthed. If the virtue of humanity is valued today, it's because of the influence of Christianity. No other culture would have promoted the virtue of humility. Some cultures didn't even have a word to make it exist. 
And so today, it doesn't matter what your religious views are, whether you're Christian, atheist, or even Jedi Knight, if you're raised in the West, you are likely to think that self-seeking honour and praise is morally questionable and lowering yourself for the good of others is ethically beautiful. That is actually the historical and global impact of Jesus' humility shown by his self-sacrifice on the cross. If humility has made such a big impact in our world, what exactly is humility? Well, humility is not thinking of yourself less. It's not having a low self-esteem or being a doormat for others. Humility is not to be put low. That's humiliation if you're being put low. But to choose yourself, to lower yourself in your choice in the service of others, that's humility. And Tim Keller has a very helpful definition. He says, humility is not thinking less of myself, it's thinking of myself less. Do you get that? Humility is not thinking less of myself, it's thinking of myself less, so that I can think more of the needs and the desires of others. John Dixon also has another helpful definition. He says, humility is the noble choice to forgo your status, deploy your resources, and use your influence for the good of others before yourself. More simply, you could say that a humble person is marked by a willingness to hold power in service of others. I think that's a very clear but also very touching definition. It's humility is the willingness to hold power in the service of others. And he says there's three key thoughts with this definition of humility. Well, first, humility presupposes dignity and self-worth because you can only lower yourself if you already have a height of dignity. So in other words, you can't show humility without a healthy and strong sense of your own self-worth and abilities. Second, humility is a willing choice. It's not forced upon you. That's humiliation. But if you choose to lower yourself for the sake of others, that's a noble act of humility. And thirdly, humility is social. It's not a private act of self-deprecation, to choose not to talk proudly of yourself, to choose not to show off. Uh, That's modesty. But humility is about redirecting your power, your influence, your abilities for the service and sake of others. And what we see in this passage, humility is not just a good Christian virtue that the Western society has embraced. This passage shows that humility is also the way to joy. And so where we left off of last week's passage was that God was able to advance the gospel through Paul in the face of opposition. He was chained in prison and he was in conflict with church leaders who were trying to inflict him with emotional distress through slander and talk. But now Paul encourages the Philippian church to also stand firm in the face of opposition as he had stand firm in the face of his own opposition. And so he says in verse 27 of chapter 1, if you were to jump back there, chapter 1 verse 27, he says, Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And the interesting thing is that the Greek word that has been translated as conduct yourself is actually just to be a citizen. And so it's a political word that implies 
a political duty of a citizen of a city. And so what Paul is saying to the Philippian church is that they're actually dual citizens. They're citizens of Rome in a Roman colony of Philippi, but they're also citizens of the kingdom of God. Paul's saying is that as dual citizens, the Philippian church needs to be a good citizen, not of just Rome, but a good citizen of the kingdom of God within Caesar's colony. They are to do that, be a good citizen, by living in the way that's consistent with the gospel of Christ, consistent to God's word. And so if you're a follower of Jesus here in Sydney, then you would have fulfilled your duty as an Australian citizen by voting yesterday. If you haven't, you're a bad citizen. But if you're a follower of Jesus, you are also to follow and fulfill your duty as a citizen of the kingdom of God, to live according to God's word in every situation, in all that you do. And Paul spells out three specific things of what it means to live as a good citizen of the kingdom of God. And firstly, it's to stand together, to be standing together for the faith. Paul says, as we read on, then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, to stand firm in one spirit. To witness and advance the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Philippian church needs to stand firm in their commitment to Jesus Christ. And the image that we get is, is like soldiers in a battle. They must not yield an inch of ground, no matter how hard the opposition is pressing against them. They must not yield not an inch of ground, but to stand firm in the commitment of Jesus Christ by one spirit. And that's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will give the Philippian church the power to remain united and unshakable in the face of opposition. We read on striving together as one for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed but you will be saved and that by God. Striving together, again, is another military expression, a military image of soldiers who stand firm together but also are striving and fighting side by side. The Philippian church are to strive, to contend for the faith, not as separate individuals, but to strive together as one person, together, strong, united, And when Christians are fighting against each other rather than fighting side by side, obviously unity is lost. And our weakness to others is weakened. We are to fight for the faith of the gospel so that souls will be one for Christ, not fighting against each other. In other words, your soulmate is not your lover your boyfriend or girlfriend or your husband or wife, your soulmate is actually your fellow brother and sister in Christ because Paul says, quite literally, striving together as one soul for the faith of the gospel. We are soulmates in Christ as we unite to be one soul. We actually have this deep bond with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ to win people over for Christ. And when we do that, as we see each other as soulmates contending for the faith to win people over for Christ, together we will not be frightened by any opposition. Together we will not be intimidated, 
no matter how powerful the opposition is against us. So it's fearless we will be when we are united in faith. But it will mean that we will suffer together. Boldness and suffering, Paul goes on to say, is, goes hand in hand. Paul says, verse 29, For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now he that I still have. The suffering here is not your everyday headaches or heartaches. Suffering on behalf of Christ is caused by publicly identifying with Christ in a world that is hostile to Christ. And so saving faith is grace, a gift from God. But the ability to suffer for the faith is also a grace, a gift from God. You might notice that the common thread that runs through these three specific aspects of living as citizens of the kingdom of God in order for us to witness to a hostile world, the common thread is unity. One faith, one spirit, one mind, one soul. And what Paul is saying, without unity we cannot stand together. Without unity we cannot strive together. And without unity we can't suffer well together for Christ. And so Paul now urges the Philippian church to resolve and heal conflict and divisions within the church. And he does this by first appealing to the certainties of grace to motivate them towards unity. Paul says from chapter 2 now, verse 1, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in his spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Paul states four certainties of grace for those who are in Christ. First is that Christ encourages us when we are united to him by the Holy Spirit. In times of discouragement, Christ encourages us with his peace, hope and love. Second, Christ also not only encourages us, he comforts us in times of despair. There is unlimited supply of consolation in Christ for every believer in him. And third, those in Christ have the grace of fellowship in the Holy Spirit, who all share in the gift of the Holy Spirit, who all share in a common inheritance, a treasure in heaven that we will all inherit. We are all equal heirs to the kingdom of God. And fourth, being in Christ by the Holy Spirit enables you to exhibit tenderness and compassion towards others because you would have experienced tenderness and compassion from Christ. Paul says you have been graced with encouragement, comfort, fellowship with God and tenderness and compassion in Christ all given to you by the Holy Spirit who dwells in you You have all the resources and all the power of God that you you ever need to handle any discouragement. And so with these realities and certainties in Christ, you actually have all that you need for Jesus to help you to seek and maintain unity within the church. With Christ's grace, you should have every confidence to be united to witness together to a hostile world. 
If we can do that in confidence in Christ, then that will result in great joy. Paul says, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Disunity and painful division in the church breaks the Apostle Paul's heart and it diminishes his joy. But unity in the church enlargens and completes his joy by commitment to love each other as Christ has loved us as one soul, as soulmates, with a one mindset to witness and save souls in this broken and hostile world. When church members are preoccupied with their own personal agenda, their own personal preferences, their own likes and dislikes, they will pull in different directions and split the church into separate interest groups. There will be these separate little meetings, separate little chat groups. And when these people focus and feed on their own egocentric priorities, they will be disunited. Only when they can redirect their minds to the common goal of standing and striving together in obedience to our Lord Jesus to witness into a broken and hostile world would they then be united when they shift their mindset. And so the only way to let go of personal agendas and egos for the sake of joyful unity, Paul says, is through humility. Paul says, verse 3, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interests of others. The word translated as selfishness actually means less about self-centeredness and more about having a divisive spirit. So, for example, you may not think that you're pushing a certain agenda for selfish reasons. You may generally feel like you're pushing an agenda with a genuine ambition and desire for the good of the church. But the question is, are you pushing your agenda with a divisive spirit that can produce strife? And Paul says, pushing an agenda in this way leads to vain conceit. Literally, it means empty glory. See, pushing and winning an agenda in this way with a divisive spirit is actually not going to be at a spiritual accomplishment. But Paul says it actually reveals an inner spiritual emptiness of that person. The empty glory gained by selfish and divisiveness is in absolute contrast to the glory, the real glory that God gives to Christ who made himself nothing and humbled himself. See, the true obstacle to unity is actually not the presence of legitimate differences of opinion, but it's actually self-centeredness and a divisive spirit. It's actually not that we have different opinions or have different personalities. What is that? The heart of the issue is the pursuit of empty glory. But Paul says we aren't to do that. Instead, we are to, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interest, but the interest of others. To the interest of others. And when Paul says to value others, again, it's another interesting word. It actually has more of a, a, more of a counting word, actually. 
To value is to calculate, to count and calculate. In other words, to add up people's needs and interests and weigh that more and then to subtract your own personal interest and weigh that less. That's the intellectual consideration, the thoughtfulness of what it means to value others is actually to carefully count, calculate, add up other people's interests, weigh that more and subtract your own personal interests and weigh that less. And then once you work that out, once you find that balance, you'll find that balance will be something that is most beneficial for the church, not just for yourself or a small group of people. So it's quite intentional, it's quite thoughtful, it's quite considerate. And when Paul says to look out, it means to keep an eye out of other people's needs. It doesn't mean to have self-neglect, but for everyone to give the largest share of attention to others and not to yourself. And Paul gives very, very helpful, specific, practical ways on how is it we are to show humility towards one another. But then he goes on to support this instruction by saying in verse 5, in your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And then we get this beautiful, beautiful uh, description of how Jesus shows humility towards us. And he's saying, as you try to do that, as you calculate, as you value, as you look at the interests of others, what will be really helpful is you are to focus on Jesus Christ. And the thing is, as you read that, a common reading will be like, show humility by following the example of Jesus Christ. And the example is described from verses 6 to 11. What I found really interesting is that why is it written like a song? Why is it written like a hymn? Why does it have such poetic and beautiful language to describe the example of Jesus Christ? And what I find interesting as a fresh reading of this is that you can read it as he gives the instruction, but then he proclaims the one who shows true humility. So rather than reading going, this is the instruction on how to be humble, value others, seek others' interest, rather than just go, okay, now follow in Jesus' footsteps and follow his example, I think what Paul might be doing is be totally blown away in Jesus as the only one who exhibits true humility. In other words, he's giving the instruction, but then he's showing it's in Jesus that we have the power so that we don't just follow in Jesus' example, but it's only in Jesus' power as we are inspired, as we are compelled, as we are blown away by Jesus' ultimate show of humility That is the power that transforms us and enables us to actually do humility. Do you get that? Because if you just say it's just a 
moral example, just follow what Jesus has done, then we will try to pull up our socks and go, okay, yeah, Jesus, obviously he sacrificed for me, so he's my saviour, I'm going to have to do it. But if we see this as a moment of worship, a moment of proclaiming that there is only one who is truly humble, and we see that in Jesus, that melts our hearts. That gives us the power to renew our minds. It is in his ultimate example by which we can never ever follow in his footsteps that we would ever be renewed in our minds to follow Jesus. So I want you to imagine, I don't need to explain this first, but I just want you to imagine, here is Paul in prison. He's telling the church how to exhibit humility. And then all of a sudden, he's a theologian, a Bible teacher, and all of a sudden he's inspired to be able to write a song. He writes a Christian hymn that throughout the ages, many Christians have looked back on this. And to this day, this is probably the most beautiful hymn of Jesus' humility. And just imagine him in jail, inspired to write this beautiful hymn and song as he is mentally drifted towards Jesus at the cross. That is the power by which he is inspiring the Philippian church to be able to practice humility. So I'm just going to read that out and I want you to imagine Paul as he imagines Christ at the cross. This is Paul, who being very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. How do we do humility in church? It's our continual worship of Jesus. To say we can't do humility, Jesus can. And I can't just follow in your example. I need to be inspired through worship and relationship with you in Christ to enable for my mind to relate to my brothers and sisters in Christ in humility as my mind is now inspired in worship of the very one who has shown absolute humility. It is in from that inspiration that the Philippian church in humbleness can seek joyful unity. And so Paul wraps it up and says, well, what is this, how is this going to work out on the ground? He says, verse 12, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Now, this is a very common uh, few verses that talks about that we do need to uh, work out our salvation So we don't work for our salvation. Salvation is a gift from God. Um, But in terms of the gift of the Christian life, we are to proactively work that out. But we need to read that that's not about your individual journey with God. 
if we read that in context of the unity of the church, how we communally work out our Christian life together is to actually work out our unity in humility. So what I'm saying is that working out your salvation in this context means to work out our unity in Christ with humility before God, with fear and trembling. To know that whatever happens here at church, God is Lord over it. And so we should do things and say things and relate to one another with a healthy reverence before God. And what it means to us to work out our Christian life, specifically in this context, is to work out our unity. We need to work hard at that. But an encouraging thing is that it is also God who works in us to will and act, to will and act in humility in order to fulfill his good purpose so that in unity we can stand, strive and suffer together for the sake of winning souls for Christ. And what, that, what it actually looks like for us to work it out, he goes on to say, we need to do everything without grumbling or arguing. Grumbling is murmuring and muttering, private complaints under one's breath. It's the whispering of complaints, talking in secret against someone, making negative comments about others behind their back. We aren't to do that, not just in church, but in all that we do, in every setting of our lives. And arguing is the quarrelling and debating in ways that are divisive and raise doubts. It's that contentious spirit that feels the need to continually question and argue what is done at church. It's not saying that church members can't question or raise a genuine concern. The issue is the attitude of the heart. It's that contentious spirit and that tone of voice that is going to hinder our ability to humbly work towards unity as we work out our salvation together. But if we can do this, Paul says, then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. Then, as we go back to the start, only then, in humble, joyful unity, only then will be like stars, a light as we strive, stand and suffer together to win other people over for Christ. Only then would people look upon our church community and see it as a breath of, light, breath of fresh air, as a light in the darkness. Then can we be effective then can we be effective in striving, standing, suffering to win many poor people in our city for Christ. And so I want to end to kind of summarise and say Chapel Hill is not just your spiritual home and it's not just my spiritual home. If you ever moved into a new place, you want to make it your own. So you add your own little touches um, do things and design ways according to your personal preferences and tastes. But I think Paul reminds us that our spiritual home is a home that's open to others. 
And so we need to work together to make a home that's comfortable, livable, approachable, accessible, relatable, so that others can feel at home at Chapel Hill, can come into the unity of Christ. And so that means we need to be humble about the way we do things at church. And we need to be thinking about not just the interest of each other, but the interest of those who God has called us to witness to. That's the image that I want to portray for us. That Chapel Hill is not just your spiritual home, it's not my spiritual home, but it's a spiritual home that's open to anyone and everyone. So they might come to also worship the only God who would, in being very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. That is our one mindset. That is our one goal. That is our one priority, that people will come to know Jesus who died for them. And everything else is work together for that sake. Let me pray. Our Father in heaven, Humility is hard, if not impossible, for us sinners. And so change our hearts, change our minds as we come to worship Jesus, as we come to see his mindset, as we come to see his actions, as we come to see his words, May that change us, renew us, and give us the power to relate to one another with the same mindset as Christ Jesus. We ask for your help. We ask for your power. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.